Let us pray. O great God, You are a God full of wonder. A God beyond our comprehending. A God full of mystery. But these mysteries are not too dark for us. They are too bright. We cannot gaze upon them because You dwell in light unapproachable. And yet, You have revealed Yourself to us, mystery and all, through the Lord Jesus Christ, through His death and resurrection. And so, Father, today, open the eyes of our hearts that we might behold Your majesty, Your beauty, Your glory, Your victory. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Today and perhaps over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at the deepest, most mysterious, most important questions, I think, we can possibly ask. We are going to be probing these words from Psalm 22 that Jesus cries out from the cross, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? They were misunderstood when Jesus first spoke them. I think they've been misunderstood in many ways since. But I think they're crucial for us. Even if we can't fully grasp or comprehend what they mean, I think it is crucial for us uh, to dig into these words. Uh, the meaning of Christ's cry of dereliction fascinates me. Uh, it, it just it, it, it seized my attention and my imagination many years ago. Uh, and I hope that through this sermon today and perhaps over the next couple of weeks, I can draw you into my interest uh, in this particular uh, aspect of the Gospel. Because I think this cry of Jesus from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, brings us not only really to the climax of Mark's Gospel, it brings us to the very heart of our redemption. Indeed, it brings us to the very heart of God Himself. And I hope that as we look at these words of Jesus from the cross, you will be just as mesmerized by the mysterious paradoxes here as I have been. Uh, I think you will. I hope you will also see uh, that this is not just a sort of esoteric piece of theology, but this is immensely practical. It is deeply transformative when we grasp it. This cry of dereliction reveals not only the depths of the Gospel and how God has saved us, it takes us to the very deepest depths of God's own being. But how? How can this be? Scripture is God's self-revelation. Scripture shows us God. Scripture reveals God to us. And Scripture is very clear. There is one God. One true God. And this one true God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity. God is a communion of love within Himself. The Father and the Son have been loving and serving each other in the Spirit, giving glory to and receiving glory from each other from all eternity. Does that fellowship somehow get interrupted at the cross? Is there somehow a, a rift or a break in the life of the Trinity as the Son bears our sins and therefore the Father's wrath when He dies? What's going on here? What does the cross show us about who God is? If God is willing to die on a cross, what does that say about who God is? And how should we live our lives in life of that reality? Let me start with this question. When I say the word God, what comes to mind? When you think of God, when you hear that word, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? 
I think for a lot of people in our culture, the first thing that pops into their minds when they hear the word God is a kind of indulgent Santa Claus figure in the sky who doesn't really care how we live. He just wants us to be happy. He's a God who's always smiling. But there are others who hear that word God and they think of an angry father who's harsh and always ready to punish. They think of God as one who gets mad when his rules aren't kept and so he's mad all the time. And so theirs is a God who's always frowning. Still others will hear that word God and think of a supreme being who perhaps made the world, but who then wound it up like a clock and lets it run more or less on its own. This is a God who is cold and aloof. A God who is distant. A God who made the world but isn't really involved in the world. Still others will hear that word God and think of the gods of the philosophers. God as an abstract concept, a force or a principle, something like Aristotle's unmoved mover. Still others will hear the word God and think of Allah or the God of some other religion. What is God like? There is no more important question than this. And I want to contend that in Jesus' cry of dereliction, indeed in the whole event of the cross, I think we have our answer. The cross reveals God as He is. The cross is not some kind of brilliant disguise where God's still hiding. No, this, and we see this with the tearing of the veil in, in the temple happening as Jesus dies. This is where God unveils Himself for all to see. Martin Luther said that for us as Christians, our whole theology is the cross. He said the cross alone is our theology. The cross sums up what we believe about God. Luther contended when God died on the cross, He was not acting out of character. No, He said God is most fully revealing Himself at the cross when He gives Himself in sacrificial love. And so Luther would say, when you hear the word God, you should think of that mangled man hanging on a tree dying for your sin. When I say God, you should think cross. You should be able to look at the cross and say, behold your God. This is the God we love and worship and trust. Christians are people who point to the cross and say, God is like that. And I want you to consider just how radical this is. You know, we have a tendency, of course, to think of God as a ruler and a rule giver. And then if we add the cross to that, you know, we start with that view of God, and then we add the cross to that, we maybe think of the cross as kind of a one-shot deal. You know, God, this one time, he, he acted out of character. But it doesn't really show us what God is like. Or perhaps even we say something like this, on the cross, we see Jesus in His human nature dying, but this is not a divine revelation. God's not involved in the cross in that kind of way. I want to argue that the cross is God's ultimate unveiling of Himself. This is where the veil is torn. This is where we get to see truly this man is the Son of God. I want to talk about three things this morning. This will, this will continue on next week as we... Uh, continue to look at this. There's certainly more here than I can do in one sermon. But three things that flow out of Jesus' cry of dereliction. And I want to argue that the true nature of God is revealed to us at the cross. And this is how I want to do it. First, I want to argue that the Trinity, the whole Trinity is present 
at the cross. Second, I want to look at what the cross meant for the Son. And then third, I want to look at what the cross meant for the Father. And you might say, well, where's the Holy Spirit in that? I think that'll be implicit in everything else we say. But first, let's talk about the cross and the Trinity for a few minutes. If Luther is right, and really the whole Christian tradition, I think, agrees with him, there have been some quibbles here and there, but on the whole, I think this is uh, what, what Christians as a whole believe. If Luther is right that the cross is our theology, that the cross reveals God, what does that tell us about who God is? What does it mean to say that God is the God of the cross, that God is cruciform? What does it mean to say that Good Friday, the day of the cross, is a day in the life of God? At the cross, Father, Son, and Spirit work together as one God to redeem us. You can go back to the very opening pages of the Bible and you find Father, Son, and Spirit working together in the creation of the world. That's Genesis 1. So here in Mark 15, Father, Son, and Spirit together work out our recreation, our restoration, our redemption. We are saved by the Trinity. I'll put it this way. Sin does not shatter the Trinity. The Trinity shatters sin. The eternal love of Father and Son cannot be violated. The Father and Son cannot stop being one. They cannot stop loving each other. And that means we have to consider the Trinity in light of the cross and the cross in light of the Trinity. How does the Trinity save us? How do the three persons work together against sin and for our salvation? Let me start with an analogy. And of course, like all analogies, it's very imperfect. I, I actually picked this up from, uh, from Josh Butler, a pastor in Oregon. While it's imperfect, I think it's still helpful in getting at this. Suppose you have a family trapped in a forest fire. Actually, it's a fire that they themselves started, but now that fire threatens to engulf them. And so they're surrounded by this forest fire. And so a helicopter team of firemen undertakes their rescue. And in this team, you have one fireman who pilots the helicopter. And so he's up above the smoky blaze. He can see the big picture, and he can plan out the whole rescue mission. And he sends down a second fireman. He sends down a second fireman on a rope into the fiery blaze to track down the family, to wrap the rope around them so that they can be lifted to safety with the first fireman in the helicopter. Now, in that analogy, if you, if you, if you think about that, what's going on there, the first fireman who pilots the helicopter obviously is like the father. The second fireman who descends into the fiery blaze and grabs hold of the family is like the Son. And of course, the rope is like the Holy Spirit in some way who connects the Son to those He's seeking to save as they are wrapped together, united together by the rope, but also connects the Son to the Father even as they are at, great, at a great distance from one another. Now, like any analogy, I said it's imperfect. It quickly breaks down. The Father, Son, and Spirit are not separate individuals. You can't even just say there are three who have come together to act as one team. No, Father, Son, and Spirit are the one God. They share a common life. They share one will, one life together, a common nature. You could also criticize the illustration saying the Holy Spirit is a person, not an inanimate object like rope. 
You could say further that God's salvation is ultimately not just rescuing us out of this creation, lifting us out of this creation, but actually renovating and redeeming the whole creation itself. So our redemption is much bigger than just an escape out of the fiery blaze. It's actually the whole forest is restored and transformed and perfected in the way the Bible actually tells the Gospel story. But still, I think there's a lot of truth in this analogy here. The rescue mission requires all three members of the team to work together as one. Each person of the team has a necessary role to play in the rescue of the human family. This is really, you could say, the story of how the Trinity has saved the world. The whole Trinity is involved in our salvation. The whole Trinity is involved in the cross. There's a saying that theologians uh, sometimes use, a kind of axiom of theology. All of God does all that God does. Anything God does, all three persons are involved in some way in that work. Not necessarily in the same way, but they're all involved in it. There, there's, you know, if you think of the Trinity again, you can't think of the Trinity as a team. That doesn't really capture it. But if you think of the Trinity as a band, it's not like any member of the band is ever going to go off and have a solo career. It just doesn't work that way. They're always united together. In the Trinity, it's all for one and one for all. Or you could say three for one and one for three. In the Trinity, that's just how it is. All of God does all that God does. So Father, Son, and Spirit all have a role to play in this work of God. They are one. They are covenanted together to work as one God in saving us. All of God is involved in all that God does. And this is so important to see. God is not compelled by anything outside of Himself to redeem us any more than He was compelled by something outside of Himself to create us. He is compelled only by His own love to undertake this work of redemption. And it's the three persons working together, even at great cost to God. God is committed, Father, Son, and Spirit, to this work of our redemption. See, this is what we see in the Gospel. God is for you. Father, Son, and Spirit work together with, with all that they are and with all that they have for your benefit. That's the good news of the Gospel. They have one purpose revealed in one love, one plan of redemption, and it all comes to fruition at the cross. This is the climax of God's saving work. So the Gospel is triune. It is a Trinitarian Gospel. Now, when you look at the cross, you don't see the Father and the Spirit the way that you see the Son, but we know that they are present. In fact, I, I want to go further and say this. The cross actually takes place within God's triune life. The cross takes place within the life of the Trinity. Indeed, the cross is only comprehensible if God is a Trinity. If God is not a Trinity, the cross simply doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense. Let me tell you how. If God is not a trinity, who is there to receive Jesus' sacrifice on the cross? The Son has to offer Himself to His Father or it doesn't make any sense. If God's not a trinity, it doesn't make any sense. Who is Jesus offering Himself to when He dies? And if not the Son, 
who shares God's own nature, who could offer the Father an acceptable sacrifice of infinite worth? Who can offer the the Father a sacrifice worthy of our salvation, a sacrifice that could actually pay our debts? It could only be God's own Son who shares in His very being and His life. Anyone else offering that sacrifice, it would be inadequate. The cross is a transaction that takes place within the one divine life of the Trinity. There are theologians in the history of the church who have said the cross primarily has reference to Satan and it's a kind of ransom payment to Satan. There are other theologians in the history of the church who have said that the cross is primarily an example for men, an example of love for us to follow. Now the cross does have a reference to Satan. And it is Satan's defeat. Satan is defeated at the cross. And it is an example for men. So there's a Satan word dimension to it and a man word dimension to it. It is an example for it. But most fundamentally, primarily, the cross is something that takes place within God's own life between the Father and the Son. When we look at the cross... We certainly cannot ignore the human actors involved. Judas, Pilate, Peter, the Jewish priests and Roman soldiers. They all have their part to play. They're all figures on the stage of history. But there's more going on than meets the eye. The real transaction is going on. It's taking place between the divine persons of the Father and the Son in the Spirit. So how can that be? Well, think about this. You know, How can God be acting one way in this and Humans another way. Think about this. A mugger and a surgeon both might use a knife to cut open your body. But they do so for diametrically opposite purposes. And so it is with the crucifixion. Humans are involved in the crucifixion in one way and God in another. They're both involved in crucifying Jesus. They're involved in this same action, but for totally different reasons. It is an act of injustice for the human actors, but it is an act of justice for God. It's an act of hatred for the human actors. It's an act of love for God. It's so important to see the cross as taking place within God's life. It's not like you have the offended God over here and the sinful human race over here and then some third party steps in between us to negotiate a settlement. Or perhaps even to bear punishment for us and somehow satisfy God. No. What happens is God Himself, the offended God, crosses over and enters into our humanity in the incarnation of the Son to pay our debts and affect our reconciliation at the cross. So, God is the offended party. But He's also the one who pays what the offender owes. That's, I think, what Paul is getting at in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. God is in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. What is God doing? God is providing a sacrifice to satisfy God's own wrath and to reconcile God's people to God. God Himself is providing what God requires. At the cross, God satisfies God. At the cross, God saves us from God. God absorbs His own wrath. God bears His own judgment. God does not punish someone else. Some kind of third party. No, God takes His own 
punishment against our sin. Only Jesus Christ as the God-man, God in the flesh, can offer to God what we owe so that our debt can be canceled. And so there's that bill of debts that we owe, all our sins that have piled up. God takes that bill and He stamps on it, paid in full in the blood of Christ. But you see this, only the Trinity can explain how the cross actually works. Only the Trinity can explain how the cross actually atones for sin. So far from the Father being absent from the Son on the cross, the Father is completely one with His Son. So together with one will and one plan and one love, the Son lays down His life and the Father receives His sacrifice. You might even say, never have the Father and Son been closer than they were at the cross. They've always been infinitely near, so it doesn't really make sense to say that. They've always fully and infinitely indwelt one another. But there's this oneness at the cross between Father and Son. You could say, never was the Father more pleased with His Son than when His Son died in obedience to Him. But of course, again, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to say that either because the Father has always been infinitely pleased with His Son. Maybe you could say, never has the Son trusted more fully in His Father than at the cross when He gave Himself up to His Father, when He offered Himself to His Father, when He said, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. But of course, again, I'm not sure that makes a whole lot of sense to say either because the Son was always absolutely and infinitely loyal to His Father. But you see my point here with all of this. The Father and the Son are one at the cross. You cannot pit the Father and the Son against one another. You have to see them working with and for each other. And of course, all for our sake. All in mercy and in love and in grace to deal with our sin. So whatever else we say about the cry of dereliction, it cannot contradict this. The oneness of Father and Son in the Spirit at the cross accomplishing our redemption. But there is more to say. Even though we can't deny anything we've said to this point, there is more to say. We still haven't really explained what the cry of dereliction actually means. And I think if we really want to understand the cry of dereliction, we've got to look a little closer at the role of the Son and the role of the Father, the peculiar, unique roles that Father and Son play in the cross. Let's talk about the Son. Obviously, the son knew all along he was going to be crucified. He knows this is where his life is headed. He makes it very clear he came for this very purpose. Long before you get to Mark 15, Jesus explained his crucifixion. He predicted his crucifixion. Go back to Mark 8. And we looked at Mark 8 a while back. But think about what happens there in Mark 8. Jesus says he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. And he's going to be handed over to death in crucifixion. Now, Peter doesn't get this. He can't, he cannot comprehend how this could happen. So he takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Peter cannot comprehend how God's plan would include a crucifixion. So he thinks Jesus must be mistaken. Maybe he's having a failure of faith. So Peter rebukes Jesus, but Jesus rebukes Peter in turn and says, get behind me, Satan. You have in mind the things of men, not the things of God. Okay, what are the things of men in that passage? It's glory. It's, it's not having to suffer. It's, it's, it's riding 
triumphantly to victory, riding off in the sunset uh, victoriously. What are the things of God in that passage? The things of God are suffering, sacrifice, getting crucified. The God thing in Mark 8 is the cross. I find it so interesting. You know, you'll hear people use that language from time to time. They'll talk about a God thing that happens in their life. And they're always, as I've heard that language, he's always talking about something good that's happened. You know, some unforeseen benefit that's come their way. But the God thing in the Scripture is the cross. That's the one thing that's called a God thing. It's the crucifixion. But what does it mean for the cross to be God's thing? How is it a God thing? Well, keep going in Mark's Gospel. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus said He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, I came to be the servant of sinners. To serve sinners and to give my life as a ransom, as a payment, to set them free, to liberate them, to bring about the new exodus. He'll be a ransom taking the place of sinners, offering Himself in their place. He's going to endure what all our sins deserve as our substitute. And clearly in saying this, Jesus is indicating that He's going to conquer in weakness. If He's going to offer Himself as a ransom, that's going to mean somehow He's going to offer Himself in weakness. He's going to offer Himself sacrificially. And I think the disciples really should have been able to understand this better than they did. There was certainly biblical precedent for winning through weakness. Think of David, who in order to become king had to slay the giant, but he refused to wear Saul's armor and instead used merely a sling. This weak instrument, this small shepherd boy taking on the giant, he wins in weakness. Or think about Joshua, who wins his greatest victory, not with a sword and shield, but by merely marching around the city of Jericho and blowing a trumpet. You don't really think of trumpets as instruments of war, weapons. But there they are. Joshua wins the battle in weakness. Or think about Gideon from the book of Judges. God has Gideon send most of his army home. Most of his troops are sent home so he can win with just a tiny handful of soldiers. He will win in weakness. So all throughout Scripture we see great victories won through humble trust and sacrificial service. And so we're getting a sense that's what Jesus is going to do. But when we finally come to the cross, we see Jesus takes it even further than anyone could have imagined. And on the cross, Jesus not only challenges and subverts and redefines kingship, He redefines God. He redefines Godhood. The Godness of God is revealed in a new way. And Jesus on the cross shows that the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men and the folly of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. On the cross, Jesus shows love conquers all. And He who serves reigns. Jesus knows this is the pathway He must follow. The pathway of humble and sacrificial service. It will ultimately lead, yes, to the glory of victory. But to get to that glory, He's going to pass through the valley of the shadow of death. But all of that is to say, just this one thing, the cross does not catch Jesus off guard. He knows it's coming. He knows what's in store for Him. And that means the cross doesn't happen to Jesus. Jesus happens to the cross. This is what Jesus has come to do. This will be the God thing He does. This is where He will reveal His Godness. 
He will show Himself to be the Son of God in this way. But when we actually get to the cross in Mark 15, when Jesus is hanging there on the cross, bloody, beaten, mangled, nails through His hands and His feet, something happens that we're not totally prepared for in Mark's Gospel up to this point. And it's this cry of dereliction. I think even a careful reader of Mark's Gospel going through it up to this point would be caught off guard by this. This cry of dereliction. Because it's so obvious, while Jesus has said, yes, He's going to suffer, up to this point, Jesus has always known the Father's love and joy. Jesus has known nothing but the Father's affection. The Father and Son have been one in the Holy Spirit at every step along this pathway to the cross. Think back to Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1. The Father spoke from heaven and said, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit descended upon Him like a dove. The three persons are one. They're at His baptism. His transfiguration, it's the same thing. At His transfiguration in Mark chapter 9, Jesus glows with the glory of the Spirit and the Father speaks from heaven, this is My beloved Son, hear Him. Father, Son, and Spirit, the three are one there at the transfiguration. You look at the Gospel up to this point, and every single time the Son has prayed, the Father has answered. But now on the cross, it's suddenly different. The Son cries out to heaven, but heaven doesn't answer. At His baptism, the heavens open. Here the veil in the temple is torn, but there is no descending dove. Jesus cries out and the Father remains silent. There's no Father speaking words of comfort and love. No Spirit descending upon Him. It seems truly as if the Son has been abandoned. Not only by His disciples, because they've all scattered, but even by His heavenly Father. He cries out to His Father and His Father is nowhere to be found. Now, given all that we have said about God's oneness, the unbreakable union of Father, Son, and Spirit. How can this be? This is truly, I think, one of the great mysteries of the Gospel. The Father is delivering the Son up to death on the cross. The Son is treated not as Son, but as sin. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. That's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5. Man has sinned, now God will suffer as it's been put. God made Himself sin that we might be made sons. God made His Son sin that we sinners might be made sons. That's what's happening here. On the cross, we have God forsaking God. The Father who has always loved His Son and loves Him even now with an infinite love becomes angry with His Son in this sense in that Jesus is punished for all our sins and transgressions and evil. And actually, Isaiah 53 had prophesied as much. It describes the suffering servant. Now we know Him as the incarnate Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And how does it describe Him and His ministry? What will happen to Him? It says He is smitten. And who does the smiting? He is smitten by God. Afflicted. Wounded for our transgressions. Bruised for our iniquities. 
Who wounds him? Who bruises him? Isaiah goes on to say, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to put him to grief, to number him with the transgressors. Even as God remains one in being, in some way, mysterious way, relationally, the Son suffers the Father's absence, even the Father's anger. He suffers the Father's wrath and rejection. Why? All so that we will not have to. Jesus undergoes these things in order to spare us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Means in essence, why have you separated your love from me? But Romans 8 answers that question. It is so now nothing can separate us from God's love. Jesus was forsaken, so you never will be. Or I can put it this way, we deserve to be forsaken by God. Jesus puts Himself in our place. He endures that forsakenness for us. We're the arsonists. We're the ones who started the forest fire that now threatens to engulf us and destroy us. But the Son is sent down by the Father into the smoky blaze. Not only to put the fire out, but to wrap His Spirit, the rope of His Spirit around us and lift us up to safety so that we might ascend to be with the Father. But in the process of saving us, the Son is consumed by the fiery blade. I don't think it will do to say Jesus only felt forsaken when really He wasn't. There are some who say that. Well, He just felt forsaken, but, but really He wasn't. No. How could He feel something that wasn't real? Besides that, that would still leave God's justice unsatisfied. Our sin would not be dealt with. He would not have really been smitten for our sakes. It will also not do, and I'm going to talk about this more next week, but it will not do to say only the human nature of Jesus suffered while His divine nature was untouched. Just as we've said, all of God does, all that God does. So theologians have another axiom. Just as the three persons are involved in all that God does and every work of God, so also we can say all of Christ does all that Christ does. He is the God-man in everything He does. He is the Word made flesh. And everything He does, once He becomes incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary, is done by the whole person, by the God-man in His divine and human nature. The whole person of the God-man is involved in the cross. The Son of God experiences death in and through His human nature. And you see how costly the love of God is. The, the lengths to which God has gone to love you, to redeem you, to save you. What did it cost the Son? In some mysterious, paradoxical way, it cost the Son the favor and fellowship of His Father as He soaked up evil and death like a sponge as He was hanging on a cross. In other words, you can say, the Son experienced fatherlessness on the cross. It was the ultimate exile, the ultimate banishment, the ultimate sending away. It was the final curse as He was given over to death and sin and Satan. Now we know that's not how the story ends and it would be terribly incomplete to stop there. The Father does restore His Son in resurrecting Him from the dead. And the Father vindicates His Son on the third day. We're going to get to that. 
But I think it would also be wrong to race ahead to that and end up shortchanging what happens at the cross as we see it in this cry of dereliction. Don't minimize what happened there. Jesus was the sinless Son of God. But on the cross, He became the chief of all sinners, the summation of all sinners. And that He bears our sins in our place as our substitute. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was condemned as a sinner to bear our curse on the cross. God forsakes God. God curses God. God kills God. Again, all for our sake. Why does God do this? It's all for love, for grace, for mercy. It's to save us, to rescue us, to forgive us, to deliver us from sin and death. And there was no other way. That's what Gethsemane is all about. Jesus asking, if there's another way, if there's another route to this same destination, let's take it. But there's no. Every illustration of this, of course, is, is, is going to be flawed. But perhaps you can think of it this way. This one is flawed, I want to tell you. But this is perhaps one way to think of it. The Father and the Son exist from all eternity in an unbroken circle of love. The Father loves the Son and gives Himself to the Son, and the Son in turn loves the Father and gives Himself to the Father. And this giving, receiving, and giving of love, again, goes on and on and on. It's an endless cycle, an eternal cycle, until at the cross, in some mysterious way, that circle of love is broken open. That circle of love is broken open as Jesus cries out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? The circle is broken open so that we, as sinners, can step into it. And then the circle of love closes again, now including us in that circle. And so now we are inside the circle of love. The circle of love continues on with Father and Son loving one another. But now we are included in that eternal cycle of love. And while that's an imperfect illustration, I think in a way it also captures what Jesus prays for His disciples, what He prays for His church in John 17. He prays to His Father that they, that is the the, the church, the disciples, that they all may be one as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they also may be one in us. Not just that we would be one like the Father and the Son or one reflecting that, but that we would be one in the Father and the Son. The Trinitarian unity of Father and Son in the Spirit is not just a model for the church's unity. The church actually lives inside the love of the Trinity. We have communion with the Father and the Son even as they have communion with one another. Jesus prays that they may be one in us. How did we get in God? How do we get inside Father and Spirit? How can God make room for sinners like us inside of His own divine life? What's at the cross? At the cross. This is where it happens. This is where we get inside of God, inside of God's love and life, so to speak. See, we not only believe in the Trinity, we live in the Trinity, inside the circle of love Father and Son share for one another. And this brings us to the Father. We can be much more brief here. There's a lot less biblical data 
to deal with here, but there's a lot that's implicit. We've seen what it was like for the Son on the cross. What, what, is it, what was it like for God the Father when God the Son died on the cross? For those few hours when Jesus was hanging there on the cross, what was the Father doing? What was the Father experiencing? Next week I'm going to take up more fully the whole question of God's emotional life and what it means for God to sovereignly choose to open Himself up to suffering. But just consider this. Did the cross cost God the Father anything? Certainly the Father does not suffer in the way that the Son does as the incarnate substitute and sin-bearer. The church rejected that as a heresy very early on. But the Father does Suffer. He suffers the loss of His Son. He suffers in the suffering of His Son. The Son suffers being forsaken by the Father as He dies a sinner's death. And the Father suffers in the grief and pain of the loss of His Son as any father would. You parents know what I'm talking about. You parents know, when your child is hurting, you hurt too. You hurt in the hurting of your child. It's not the same pain, but there is a pain there. You share in the pain of your child. You suffer in your child's suffering because in some way, you indwell your children. And so in some sense, you are a co-sufferer in and with your child when your child suffers. On the cross... Just as the Son in some way endured fatherlessness, so the Father in some way endured sonlessness. He endured the loss of His Son. And there is no greater pain than that. Nothing more heart-wrenching than losing a child. And yet God the Father does. He gives up His Son for our sake. He's not cold and aloof and distant at the cross. No, God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. How? How does He bring about this reconciliation? Romans 8.32 tells us. He did not spare His own Son. The Father's love for us, the Father's commitment to our salvation cost Him. What did it cost Him? What price did He pay? It cost Him His Son. And Paul's logic in Romans 8 is very clear. The Father has given us His Son, His most priceless and treasured possession. Surely He will not withhold anything else we could possibly need. First John puts it this way. John says, This is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son. So clearly we're talking about the Father's love. He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The love of the Father stands behind the cross. It is the love of the Father that turns the Roman Empire's instrument of torture into an instrument of redemption. God the Father so loved the world that He gave. And what did He give? He gave the best gift of all. He gave His Son. He gave His Son up to death. The Father suffered the loss of His Son. No, the Father does not suffer bodily the way the Son does. But the greatest pain Father and Son each endured at the cross was the relational distance that somehow came between them as the Son was sent into the far country of exile, the exile of death. 
in order to reclaim our lost humanity. This is why it's so important to see the cross as standing at the very center of God's life. The cross takes place inside the life of God. As all three persons, each in their own way, all three persons of the Trinity are involved in the infinitely costly and painful work of dealing with and taking away sin and evil and death. Or to put it another way, you could, you could say this, the cross externalizes the internal life of God. Father, Son, and Spirit have been living lives of loving sacrifice, lives of self-giving love from all eternity. That's their shared life. That's what it looks like. It's a life of self-giving love. But now that is externalized for us to see what's been going on on the inside of God from all eternity. But now, what's new about it is God does it in such a way that it deals with sin and takes sin away. There was an early Christian hymn that included the line, one of the Trinity suffered for us. And that is exactly true. But where one suffers, the other suffer along as well. We know this is true in the church. One member of the, of the church family suffers. We all suffer in that suffering. We're co-sufferers. Certainly then, this is true of God as well. The Son suffers God forsakenness. The Father suffers the death of His beloved Son. And the Spirit binds them together through the Son's cries and the Father's silence. The cross reveals to us the depth of God's law. Now what does all of this mean? You might think, oh, this is so complicated. How could this ever be practical? How could you connect these mysteries and these paradoxes with everyday life? Well, there are a lot of ways to answer that question. I'm going to get to more of them next week. But let me just give you one thing here to leave you with this morning. We started with a question, who is God? What is God like? The author Herman Melville once said, the reason the mass of men fear God and dislike Him is because they rather distrust His heart and fancy Him all watched like a brain. There are some theologians who have made God seem all brain and no heart. But I think the cry of dereliction answers Melville's complaint. The God who cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is not a God who's all brain. He's a God with a heart. Indeed, He's a God who knows what it's like to have His heart broken. And so you might ask, where is God when I'm in pain? Where is God when I'm suffering? I think this shows us God is right there with you. God knows how to suffer. He knows how to overcome suffering. And so you can trust Him because you know His heart. God has turned His heart inside out at the cross. He made Himself vulnerable. He underwent shame and loss. And suffering. And so you can know He will get you through your experiences of trial and tragedy as well. This is a God you can trust. John Stott, great theologian, pastor, once wrote, I could never believe in God if it weren't for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on a cross. But in the real world of pain, how could one worship a God Immune to it. No one could force God to suffer. No one could make God go through all of this. But God, in sovereign love, chose to open Himself up to suffering 
God these days. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for Your great love, Your costly love shown to us in the redemption of the world. We know that when the Son came among us, He said everything He did, He learned from You. And that if we have seen Him, we have seen You. So we know that in His suffering love shown to us on the cross, we're also seeing Your suffering love as well. Father, we thank You for this. Because it means we know we can trust You. We can trust You no matter what life throws at us, no matter what we go through, what we suffer. We know that You are with us in the midst of it, that You will not leave us or forsake us, that You will suffer with us and bring us through to glory. That we too might win through weakness, even as your son has. We pray this in his name. Amen.